Good evening, everyone. Thank you for coming. We will be continuing our discussion of Srila Jiva Goswami's Paramatma Sandarbha. We are talking at this time about the intrinsic qualities of the Jiva. And this evening's discussion will begin with that there is the distinct Jiva in each body. Uh, Anucheta 32. Jiva Goswami approaches this in a, in a very uh, unique manner, to say the least. So we will, we will follow his lead and read what he's written, but understand what he's using in the beginning of the Anucheta stands in opposition to the point that he's trying to make. So, the Anarchita reads as follows. By establishing that I, consciousness, is intrinsic to the self, self's inherent identity, it is automatically established that the self is also distinct in each body. Quality number 14. Yet the following reference seems to support the oneness of the jivas, which is contrary to the above conclusion. To the necessary dualistic question of the Gyani Kumaras, who are you? Bhagavan Hamsadev replied. So at least Jeeva is telling us that, that what I'm presenting here from the Bhagavatam, the discussion between the Hamsadev avatar, the Swan avatar, and the Kumaras stands in opposition. And at, by the end of the Anucheta, he will give us Praman, which is the primary Praman for the Anucheta. So really what Jiva Goswami is doing here is he's providing the, the Purvapaksa, the opposition's position. In, and he's also showing us by example of the Hams avatar, the Hamza avatar who spoke to the Kumars, that the instructions of the guru, or Krishna, and the, Krishna himself acting as guru in this particular instance, are have to be seen in context, and they are custom designed to to elicit a a deeper understanding on the part of the student is so Ham's avatar is going to respond to the Kumars from their viewpoint and in a way he's going to mock their question to bring out the the fact that the you know the Kumars who represent the Gyanmarg and the Gyanmarg's primary um, goal is the impersonal Brahman. So he's going to speak to them in a language that they should understand, but he's kind of doing it in a way that's unique. So let's, we'll read what he says. This is from the 11th canto of the Srimad Bhagavatam. So the Kumars ask, who are you? 
So they're directly addressing, you know, this incarnation of the Supreme Lord in the form of the swan. If this, and he responds as follows, if the substantive called the self is utterly devoid of multiplicity, if there's no, if the substance of the self is devoid of multiplicity, there's only one uniform substance that pervades everything, is basically, so if the substantive called the self is utterly devoid of multiplicity, then how could a question such as this ever arise to you, O Vipras? So you're great sages, you have great deep knowledge. What kind of question is this? Who are you? What's, you're seeing me as different from yourself by that question. Furthermore, what particularities such as race, qualities, and so on, could possibly form the basis of my reply. How do you expect me to, to answer that? Since there's no, you know, it's all one uniform, indivisible spiritual substance, and we're all part of it. So how, how do you expect me to reply to a question like, who are you? I'm you. You're me. I am you and you are me and we are all together, you know, some philosophy there from the 60s. <laughs> so, could possibly form the basis of my reply when the one self is devoid of all such differentiation. Jiva comes back in and says something now himself. In this, in this regard, the oneness of the Jivatmas indicated in the words of Hams Adev, who assumes the perspective of an ordinary Jiva, is posited in accordance with the common fashion of a teacher of the Gyan Mark. And that's what the Kumars are. That's their position. They are the teachers of Gyan. Or as a consequence of the material vision of the Kamars, implied by their dualistic question. So they're asked, you know. So although there is a difference among parts or between the whole and its parts, this statement of the oneness of the jivas is indeed spoken as a means to gyan for those desiring gyan, and is submitted with reference to the jiva's common identity of consciousness. So we all have consciousness, so we're all one. We all have this without distinguishing their individuality. So we share in this regard, from the Gyan viewpoint, we share a common consciousness. It's only when as we've discussed many times, our consciousness is overtaken by ignorance that we associate with a distinct individual body. Remove the ignorance, reacquire the true knowledge of the self and the distinctiveness of material differentiation like this body and that body and somebody else, it, it goes away. 
and we all come back into our proper consciousness of the oneness of our existence in Brahman. If you're a Brahmavadi, that's their that's their aspiration, and <coughs> and it's and it's kind of hard for them to explain how we got here in the first place. I mean, where did this ignorance come from? If it's all one uniform spiritual consciousness, how did spirit become polluted by the ignorance? that results in a manifestation wherein in, in the illusion of ignorance you and I are distinct individuals. Now that part of the equation it's hard for them to, to, to come up with that. You know we haven't heard uh, uh, an adequate explanation on their part to explain that aspect of the distinctiveness of the one undifferentiated Brahman which we are all together as one uniform consciousness. Was that just the Maya bodies that say that about the ignorance? What are the Brahma bodies? They hold the same position, theoretically, but their position is based on Vedic statements that, that profess that kind of uniformity in consciousness. There are Vedic statements that do support the Brahman conception. Understand the only distinction between a Brahmavadi and a Mayavadi is the Mayavadis follow Sankaracharya. Sankaracharya, he also professes to follow the Veda, but he gives his own interpretation. So the difference, the distinction between the Mayavadi and the Brahmavadi, or the pure jnani seeking Brahman realization, like the Kumars, like a Sukadev Goswami, before he was, you know, blessed, you know, with with the association of the devotees and, and heard the Bhagavatam is, is that a proper understanding of the statements of the Vedas, Vedas in support of their goal of merging into the Supreme Brahman and the presentation of a philosophy which is simply as we see it a personal interpretation of Sankaracharya, which could only be done by a topmost devotee <laughs> like Lord Shiva, who knows the devotional scriptures and the Vedas well enough to give a concocted meaning to them and have people accept it as a viable explanation. This statement of the oneness of the jivas is indeed spoken as a means to gyan for those desiring gyan and is submitted with reference to the jiva's common identity of consciousness without distinguishing their individuality. 
This type of undiscriminated reference to a single common attribute is expressed again in the very next verse. So he goes on telling the Kumaras the following. Your question, who are you, if it relates to the physical body, is indeed just a meaningless sequence of words. Since the bodies of the living beings are identical, constituted in reality of the five elements. What distinction are you saying? Who am I? I'm, I'm just a com combination of material elements, if you're referring to my body. So, you know, Krishna in his manifestation as, as the Hams uh, avatar is saying, I'm, ha I'm having trouble answering your question. You guys are vipras, you're great sages, and, you know, I, don't you know this? I just don't understand. Jiva Goswami continues to explain. Even in this regard, a difference exists among individuated parts. Therefore, Bhagavan Krishna himself says, the wise see with equal vision a brahmana endowed with education and humility, a cow, an elephant, a dog, and a dog-eater. And Brahman is equal post and faultless. Bhagavad Gita, 5th chapter, verses 18 and 19. Here, the word Brahman refers to the jiva. As Sri Narada said, by the influence of enlightened intuition, I could perceive this cause-effect aggregate in the form of my body or the universe is merely assumed out of self-ignorance as existing in me, which is to say, in par Brahman. So here it's unique. If we look to actually the verse of the Bhagavad Gita, this is a unique instance where the jiva, the term jiva, is referring to uh, well, the, the ter I'm sorry, not the term jiva, the term Brahman is referring to the jiva. So in the verse itself, it's, it's talking like, you know, it's talking about Brahman, and one would naturally assume when, we, when the term Brahman comes up, we're referring to the supreme Brahman. But in this particular instance, in this context, Krishna is referring to, in this verse, he's saying that, that this, is, this is the jiva. But he's saying the word Brahman. And Narada does the same. Narada's quote By the influence of enlightened intuition, mm -hmm. I can perceive that this cause effect aggregate in the form of my body and of the universe is merely assumed out of self ignorance as existing in me, in par Brahman. So even there, Nardis referring to himself as, which is to say in Param Brahman. Jiva Goswami continues, the meaning of this statement is follows. This cause-effect aggregate, the material manifestation, sada sat sangata, in the form of my body is merely assumed out of self-ignorance as existing in me, the individuated Brahman, my e brahmani additionally in the form of the universe it is assumed as existing in the supreme brahman 
Because of the ignorance related to the self, called Jiva Maya, I conceive that I am the body alone, and that the universe alone, consisting of gods such as Indra and Chandra, is the supreme regulating agency, Ishvara. By the influence of enlightened intuition, I realized that all this was merely conceptually constructed. Again, we're, we're given some insight into the deep thought of someone like Narada Muni who's coming into a stage of recognition of what's constituted his material existence. So he's, he's, he's like revealing to us, it's starting to make sense to me, the fact that I am part of the Supreme. I am a spiritual being. And this whole, everything that I thought and put value into, what's a va false value? It's an anartha. So he put value into the body-mind, you know, complex as being his very self. And here he's showing us how he's coming out of that. It is only because of the jiva's common identity of consciousness indicated above as well as elsewhere that we find identity statements such as I am that and you are that. So there are places in the scripture where our oneness with the Supreme Brahman are stated. There are places in the scripture where the referent in the term Brahman is the jiva. In this way, Jiva goes on. Since the oneness of the identity of all jivas whatsoever has been established, the incidental plurality, presumed on the basis of the difference in bodies, such as gods and human beings, is censured in the verses such as the following. As long as there is diversity of the gunas, there will be multiplicity of the atma. And as long as there is multiplicity of the atma, the state of karmic dependence will certainly remain. On the other hand, statements such as the one below are specifically in reference to Paramatma. Just as air, which is one without distinction and pervasive, is designated by names such as Sajja, born of six, to indicate the difference it assumes when passing through the six different holes of the Venu flute, so too it is with the Supreme Self, the Supreme Eminent Paramatma, who is one but manifests in many ways. Seems like Jiva here is reinforcing this oneness. Now we come to the actual Praman to, to where he makes, he, where he puts all the, all of all of the proper understanding in perspective. So he's given us all this to show us, you know, there are statements there and, the, and, and about the oneness. So here, let me close with the proper praman for the point being made about the distinctiveness of every individual jiva within 
existence. Intending all this, the Shruti submit their own view that there is a different jiva in each body. This is how he ends the Anacheda. This and his explanation of it. If the embodied beings, jivas, who are innumerable and eternal, were to be admitted as all-pervading. So this is from the 10th canto, and he's just quoted a little bit of it. A little bit of the verse uh, by the personified Vedas. So I'll read the translation of the entire verse that he quotes that one little pada from. If the countless living entities were all-pervading and possessed forms that never changed, you could not possibly be their absolute ruler. O immutable one, but since they are your localized expansions and their forms are subject to change, you do control them. Indeed, that which supplies the ingredients for the generation of something is necessarily its controller because a product never exists apart from its ingredient cause. It is simply illusion for someone to think that he knows the Supreme Lord, who is equally present in each of his expansions, since whatever knowledge one gains by material means must be imperfect. So Jiva continues here, and he ends up his Anucheta. Here, because innumerability and eternality are read as prior to the hypothetical conjunction yadi, if, there is no doubt about there being attributes of the jiva. This is the view of the shrutis. But all pervasiveness, sarva gatatva, is read after yadi in the verse indicating that there is doubt in this regard. Again, we come back to Sanskrit and how, how very scientific the language is. So, if you don't know exactly what the proper presentation of, of Sanskrit is, if you're not a, a scholar, a deep scholar, then yes, you could be bewildered and you could put the subject before the predicate. It's basically what's being said and is explained in the, in the commentary. Uh, this clearly shows that the latter supposition is the view of others and not that of the Shrutis. So the way they presented it, you need to know that in Sanskrit, the way they presented it is in a certain manner. And, and don't you, as a student of the Bhagavatam, be bewildered. Understand, if, if you were a Sanskrit scholar, that they'd never have composed their sentence in the way that they did if they wanted to convey a meaning of oneness and what, what, not one of distinctiveness. For this reason, the statement describing Paramatma, one divine remaining, remains hidden in all beings, informs us of the plurality of the jivas. A little bit of the commentary here. If the jiva has eye consciousness, which was the last intrinsic quality we discussed, then we have this leads us to a logical conclusion 
because of eyeness that they're distinct eyes in each of us is distinct is basically the point otherwise there would be no meaning to the jivas having a real eye we went through the false sense of eye in relationship with the material had a real sense of eye but the real sense of eye would be us or you know this the brahman so because we have a a real sense of i which is this there is this supports this particular next quality which is the jiva is distinct in each body as a possible objection to this conclusion shri jiva goswami refers to the episode of the 11th canto chapter 13 basically the kumaras approached brahma and they had a question. They asked Brahma, the mind becomes absorbed in sense objects, and the sense objects enter the mind as impressions. So how can a person desiring liberation separate them from each other? How Interesting question. How can one separate the impressions of the mind uh, regarding sense objects from the sense objects. In other words, how do you pull yourself out of Maya? Because you have impressions of the set, you know, that are come naturally because of our involvement since time immemorial within the material manifestation. Brahma wasn't able to respond. No. <laughs> so therefore, he meditated on Krishna and Krishna himself appeared as Hamsa to answer the re- to provide the appropriate response. And the appropriate response was, of course, as we spoke in the beginning here, tailor-made for a jnani. Well, you know, so it was like a reverse psychology because their question, when he showed up as the Hamsa avatar, when he showed up, their natural inquiry was, well, who are you? So he responded in a particular way. Now, it's interesting that as we read uh, a little bit of the commentary, uh, what actually, and what we haven't discussed yet, is the inquiry was made not as a form of a question by the Kumars, or maybe it was, but it was made just like when when we see somebody, we say, how are you? So it's like, how you doing? So the Kumars were just saying, who are you? <laughs> so that's one way that it could be looked at. It was just a, a simple, well, who are you? This was known to the Kumars, and that's their question what it says here in the commentary is the Kumars already had knowledge of of the responses that they received. So this was known to the Kumars, and thus their question was simply a formality, just as people ask, how are you? And the reply commonly given is, I am fine, thank you. <laughs> so the intention of Hamza's reply to the Kumars was to address their own presuppositions rooted in the monastic view. So 
they weren't really looking for the responses that they received, but the Supreme Lord is kind of just playing playing word games with them. Well, maybe you should think about your, you know, what, maybe you should think deeply about your perspective as a jnani on existence. Because, you know, you say you're 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 a, a learned jnani, but really, you're asking the question. But they weren't really asking the question. But he was answering in the situation was, well, maybe that's not the way to address somebody. A little bit of the comment. The fact is, however, that all jivas are individuals. This is clear from the Gita 5:18, where Krishna says that whoever sees the equality of the jivas in all bodies, whether they are that of a brahmana, a cow, an elephant, a dog, or a dog eater, is generally, genuinely wise. The differences pertaining to the body pertain to the body, not to the atma. If there were only one atma in all these bodies, then Krishna would have said that a person who recognizes the one brahman in all of them is truly wise. And then, in the commentary, it explains Krishna would have used different words if that was the intent, that the Burman conception was the proper conception. So it explains here, he would have used the word Brahmadarsina or Ekadarsina instead of Samadarsina. Therefore, in the next verse, Krishna says that of Jiva, Brahman, becomes faultless near dosa when established in this vision of equality, sama. In this verse, the word Brahman is used for the jiva, which is unusual. As such, Sri Jiva refers to the samadhi of Sri Narada described in the Bhagavatam's first canto, where the word Brahman is similarly used for the jiva, because both Brahman and the jiva are conscious by nature. The word Brahman can also be used for the jiva because there's a common characteristic, even though it is primarily used to denote the supreme consciousness. It is used in this way because the jiva is an integrated part of Brahman. It is not unusual for a word that generally designates the whole to be used instead to denote its part. For example, when we say, there is enough sun in this room, the word sun is used to mean sunlight. So again, word usage, context, the context of the discussion, the context of, of you know, what Krishna is saying in the Bhagavad Gita and the particular word usage, all these things although they seem, you know, perhaps pretty highbrow to us, they're common understandings of someone who really knows the Sanskrit language and who, can truly, and who, who truly knows the philosophy of the Veda in such a way that they can understand why these words were used what we would say out of context, like Brahman referring to the jiva. 
It is because the Atma and Brahman share an identity in terms of consciousness that some statements are found in scripture equating the individual self with the supreme self, such as, I am Brahman, and you are that Brahman. The intention of such statements is to emphasize the jiva's identity as pure consciousness, distinct from matter, not to convey absolute oneness of the jiva and Brahman. By way of contrast, the word jiva is also sometimes used for the supreme consciousness. As in the following verse, so now we're given an example of the opposite usage. Time merges into the cosmic being, jiva. So I'm not reading the Sanskrit here, but just the translation, the word jiva is used. Kalo mai mai jiva, jivi jiva, atmani mai jay. Time merges into the cosmic being, jiva, the regulator of maya, and the cosmic being, jiva, merges into me, the unborn self. So one would say, wow, that's, I've never heard that. Time merges into the jiva? Doesn't, doesn't compute. You know, it doesn't, according to our philosophy, according to our understanding of the Vedas, and according to our understanding of Sambandha Gyan, why would time merge into the jiva? So the word usage is unique in this regard, and it's the opposite of the of the word usage usage of um, correlating the the jiva with Brahman. From the point of view of bodily distinction, there is a difference from one person to another because of differences in appearance. There is favoritism, hatred, and exploitation. For this reason, Shastra teaches us to give up envy, hatred, and jealousy by informing us that all jivas are the same by nature. Unless we realize this unity, we will remain bound by the gunas of nature, which are the cause of the varieties apparent to the eye. The first step on the spiritual path is to become aware of the existence of spirit beyond matter. It is on this account that the variety resulting from bodily differences is censured. Sometimes scripture tells us that we are all one spirit. But in what, you know, that's a beginning stage. You're all spirit. We're all spirit. You're one, you know, back, back to that statement. I am you, and you are me, and we are all together. You know, we're all big, one big movement. So, again, context means a lot in Scripture, and that's why we have good association. That's why we listen to, you know, the spiritual master and, and advanced sadhus who explain these books to us and their commentaries so that we can we can always keep things in proper perspective and not be bewildered. Not be bewildered by the fact that there are piranhas that deal with people in the mode of ignorance, which would, will say things specifically tailored to, those, to the consciousness of those individuals and still, them, still afford them the opportunity to advance spiritually or people in the mode of passion. 
or even people in the mode of goodness. Now, we're interested in bhakti shastras. And sometimes the acharyas, even of bhakti, the sampradayas, you know, that, that, that we follow, the Vaishnav sampradayas, they use quotations from these other Puranas to substantiate a point that they're trying to make in a commentary or something. But we, we have to see the usage in the context of what's being presented overall. And sometimes they even make statements that are contrary to the accepted Siddhanta of the of the Sampradaya that they represent in a particular instance. Just like the Supreme Lord himself is supporting through his statement to the Kumars their angle of vision. So you can have an Acharya who comes and says you were Krishna you were with Krishna in Galoka and you fell down. Because why? Because culturally, that's where you're at. That's the understanding that you have been indoctrinated into. Those are the impressions that, that you have in your consciousness as to your original position with the Supreme Lord. And you fell down because why? Because you ate the apple. And, you know... That's, that started the whole thing. You were fine as long as you didn't take a bite of that apple, but once that bite came, you gave up God. That's not our Siddhanta. Our Siddhanta is much deeper than that. There's much more to do with the, with the, uh, the Shristi Leela of the Supreme Lord and his, his, his merciful dispensation and him, want, him wanting to personally experience his compassionate nature in the fullest of terms. And that's a deep philosophical point that can lead to some real difficulties in acceptance of the Supreme and his full independence in that regard. So therefore, you were with Krishna in Vrindavan and you decided with your own free will to leave. Okay. That's what I always thought happened. So we see an Acharya will use specific, he will say things to, to bring us up to the stage of spirituality and deep sambandhagyan gradually according to our conditioning whether it be in the mode of ignorance, in the mode of passion, or even in the mode of goodness. We're not even interested in goodness. It's a good stepping off point, but it's, it's also fraught with difficulties when it comes to addressing deep spiritual understanding. A lot, a lot of what's in the rest of this commentary is related to, again, word usage and different presentations of the same information. So I'm not going to delve deeply into that at this time. We'll move on in the next class to the next Anucheda. So 
the commentary says as follows. The principal quotation in this particular Anacheda is that verse from the personified Vedas, which says that if the embodied beings, jivas, who are innumerable and eternal, were to be admitted as all-pervading, then they could not be under the regulation of the Supreme Being. Just common sense. There would not be a necessity of a regulator if there was if the regulated were of the same spiritual, had the same spiritual position as the regulator, which is basically the Brahman conception. You are one and we are one. We're all together. And just to remove the ignorance and we'll, we'll realize that we are the supreme. And we can then attain our spiritual status in Brahman and lose all this distinctiveness. So we'll end there. And your question? Um, you were saying last time that talking about how the self, the real self, is an observer and is inactive in relationship to um, the material energy. Okay. Is that correct? Yeah. So, um, but we have this intrinsic agency which we just use to identify with the material energy but still we're just the observer and we're not really doing anything but we think we're doing something because we're well we're definitely involved with the material energy we we buy into material existence hook line and sinker Mm -hmm. so i mean that's that's the point being made if you woke up if we woke up from that consciousness, but that's Krishna's Krishna's Maya is that powerful. The illusion is that strong that you relate to it to such an extent and become involved in the illusion of material existence that that you you accept an ego in relationship to that and you begin to perform acts. Well, you would say, well, the G, the soul doesn't do anything, right? Yes, the soul doesn't do anything, but you you relate with it so much that it pulls you in to identification. Right. And that identification in and of itself produces circumstances whereby you're ruled by the modes of material nature. If you can remove the misidentification, then you'll see that I'm not involved. But the material body both subtle and gross, does become involved. I have assumed the material body as my very being. That's why it says that for the devotee or or any transcendentalist that they become aware of the fact that they have become so involved at the point of realizing that they're able to just sit back and let their karma run its course. So what's that mean? It means that it's a very powerful energy of the Supreme Lord makes us and keeps our consciousness wrapped up in that. So if you can just sit back and remain an observer from the spiritual position and maintain that that position of seeing 
what's going on and not become involved, not becoming bewildered by the modes of material nature, not becoming, not lamenting or being joyful in the fact that you're letting your Parabdha Karma run out. I mean, your Parabdha Karma may take you to the heavenly planets. It may be, you may have such a heavy, powerful samskara for enjoyment that there's only one way to, to, to get out of the depth of association that you've assumed. And some transcendentalists do go to the heavenly planets. Whatever. We're not attached one way or another. I don't care. Nadanam, Najanam, Nasundarim. You know, birth after birth, I just maintain the proper consciousness of my spirituality. And for the devotee, a spirituality that's rooted in selfless service to the Supreme. Are these samskaras deep? And how do we attach ourselves? Well, that's inconceivable. The Lord's Maya potency is inconceivable from from the vantage point. We would think, well, we could take the Zen. I, I read some Zen books, and I think I've said this before in a class. One thing that caught my mind was the Zen Buddhists, they have a, a, a particular perspective. Everything's like a frame of, you know, one frame after another, and you just have to watch the movie play out. But at one point, you'd say, well, how do you become liberated? They have a, uh, an interesting analogy. Well, if you have a chicken inside a, a glass jug, you could see that, you know, it's not going to come out through the, through the opening. Well, how do you get it out? There it's out. That's their conception. Well, it's a, it's a mental constraint. So really, if you could adopt such a, such a nonchalant way of seeing that you're not this material body, there you're out. But the thing is, that's, that's not the way generally. But you can become Krishna conscious in, in an instant. The problem is, what are you going to do in the next instant? Are you going to be Krishna conscious in the next instant, in the next, in the next? Once you can build the samskaras for continual detachment, then the material energy just becomes your servant. And just, yes, please, whatever you want. Yes, it's a bewildering thing because we have the philosophy on one side and then we have the practical experience. The practical experience is it's hard to comprehend philosophically we can comprehend the fact that we are in the ultimate issue the atma the self but practically speaking we've got some very deep and significant samskaras and you'd say well those samskaras are just related to the mind mind intelligence false ego why can't i just you know Let's just turn it off and let me be a devotee. Okay, well, be a devotee. I'm working on it. Yeah, just be a devotee. Don't expect that to turn off. Otherwise, Krishna has to give the atheists their due. If Krishna just liberated everybody that wanted to be his devotee the second they wanted to be a devotee, then he could. He certainly can. Shivananda's dog was gone, was liberated in a moment. We should be so fortunate. <laughs>
But if we're not so fortunate, yeah, we'll be, be we'll, we'll accept whatever Krishna wants in our particular circumstance. Sometimes the guru will say, yeah, well, you're already liberated and, and you have your spiritual body, like Gopa Kumar. What? I'm, this is my spiritual body? Wow. I don't have to change bodies again? I'm eternally this little cowherd boy? Okay. That's nice. Or like Narada Muni. In an instant, in a flash, he attained a spiritual body. Where'd death go? He immediately went from whatever. He explains it in the Bhagavatam. He tries to relate to us what the experience was like. In an instant, in a flash, like lightning, simultaneously lightning and whatever. But yeah, I can't remember the specific wording that he used. Yes, you can become Krishna conscious in an instant. And you will become fully enlightened in an instant. But when your instant is, I won't be part of that. It'll be your experience. You'll still look like you have a body to, to everybody around you and you'll be fully spiritual. That's why we say the spiritual master has a, a, a spiritual body. And we treat it with such in due regard as being fully spiritual even when he apparently leaves it. Anything else? Thank you so much for your association.